Maya. And I'm Zenia. And we are back for a second series of Making It to Motherhood. If you listen to series one, you'll know that we've been friends for a really long time. But we were brought closer together by the tragic loss of our babies and subsequent unconventional journeys to having more children. Yep, together we've been through everything. From miscarriage to stillbirth, baby loss and switching off life support, IVF, genetics counselling and surrogacy. And having spoken a lot about our own journeys in series one, we're now going to hear from some other amazing mothers about their experiences, as well as a few relevant experts along the way. This is Making It to Motherhood, a podcast where we talk about grief, life after loss, journeys to motherhood, and all the ups and downs along the way. Subscribe now and join us every Wednesday from January the 12th on the roller coaster of Making It to Motherhood. And you can keep up to date with all the latest by following us on Instagram at Making It to Motherhood. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Making It to Motherhood. Maya, tell me how you've been this week. And this week, I'm pretty good, actually. We are just getting back into routine after half term. So, Little Rugrat is back into his daycare mornings. We survived. A week of chaos at home and yeah back into the swing of things oh we are mid half term so probably where <laughs> you were last week <laughs> this week we have dr davis on maya do you want us to tell us a little bit more about who he is yeah so dr davis is one of my favorite people um because he was my ivf doctor and he basically made freddie he was the person that we turned to when we'd lost Leo and we didn't really know what our options were or whether we actually had any options for trying again other than trying again and crossing our fingers and potentially having another baby with NKH so he was the answer to our prayers really he'd opened a clinic in the Cayman Islands and we went to him and met him, loved him, put all our kind of eggs, eggs in, in the basket. basket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now he's agreed to come on and chat to us about what's going on in the world of IVF, the sort of things that, that he does, and hopefully answer some questions that are out there and what is kind of what IVF is all about, really. And I mean, I haven't heard of that many people say that they love their IVF doctor. So I'm looking forward to meeting this guy already. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, without further ado, let's go. So this week, Zinnia and I are very privileged to have with us my IVF doctor, Dr. Davis. And he's just flown back from the US where he was originally practicing and he is now practicing in Grand Cayman where I live. So we're very fortunate to have him on and thank you for joining us. Well, no problem. Thank you for having me. It's it's an honor to be here and to be able to chat with both of you. Oh, thank you. And so let's let's dive right in. First of all, tell us and our listeners a little bit about kind of yourself, your background, and what on earth made you want to kind of get into the world of IVF? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I've been practicing in IVF about 10 years now. So it's it's not brand new to me, but when I went into medicine, I knew what really appealed to me from the science standpoint was a bit of the biochemistry. And I also enjoyed the the psychology aspect of, of health and wellness and kind of merging those two together into a, a perfect fit. Uh, didn't mash up with a lot of the other fields of, of medicine, but what it really resonated with was those going through a fertility or a family building journey is there's a bit of science, there's a bit of chemistry, biochemistry, but then more importantly is there's a lot of levels that people go through emotionally, mentally throughout this whole process. And it just, it really clicked with me and I, I kind of fell into it. I had a opportunity as in the U S when we trained to do fertility, you start out in women's health and obstetrics and gynecology in my sort of progress through that uh, training, I happened across, uh, I needed a rotation. Essentially, I needed a, a month to fill a, a credit, if you will. <laughs> and um, a colleague of mine who's a gynecologist said, oh, you should check out this fertility part. And I was like, oh, what's fertility? How does that fit into women's health? They're like, oh, no, it's subspecialty. Spent about a month with this gentleman that was a fertility doctor. And probably about a week in, I said, this is exactly what I want to do. This is perfect. It fits every every aspect that I've been looking for as far as all those different elements and uh, return back. So yeah, it was fabulous. So 
So, and then, uh, you know, in the training in the U S you finish your Abzagaini and then you go on to do a fellowship, uh, which is, a you know, four years for Abzagaini and three additional years for fertility. And then, uh, you go out and actually practice. So, so I've been in practice now about 10 years doing this and this is, this is all I do, but I love it. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. I mean, I, I don't think I realized three years specific fertility training. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what I thought it would be, but that just seems like a really long time. <laughs> It's, it was a bit of a long drive. So it's, I mean, it, definitely one of those things you have to commit early on to say that I'm going to be in it for the long haul. Cause of course you have your university years and then you've got your medical school years and then you have your residency and then you have your fellowship. So it's, I think it was about a 12 year process or more when you added up. No, more than that, actually. Yeah. It's about 15 years. Oh my God. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but it's, it, you probably spent over half your life in education by the sounds of things. Yes. Much, much of it, yes. <laughs> I mean, must be yeah. pretty good at exams then. <laughs> New levels of commitment. Yes. <laughs> and you were also, before moving to the Cayman Islands, you were in New York and now you found yourself on a on a small island. So we might talk about some of the intricacies that you may have found kind of between big city and small island practicing but but that's essentially the journey that you've made as well over the last few years right correct yeah and honestly it's been amazing because working in new york is i mean it's a wonderful place to be it's wonderful you know cutting edge science cutting edge technology and that really was what i was i was you know doing when i was in new york was working in one of the best practices in the world and their main focus was on extremely high success rates, specifically looking at genetic screening as a tool for maximizing success for patients. And so kind of knowing that I wanted to do something different and knowing that I wanted to kind of expand. And uh, I've always had a, a side sort of passion for global health and health outside of the, you know, kind of the day-to-day, but kind of looking at it in different environments, different cultures, different communities. And this opportunity to to start something, start my own practice, to do something new in the Cayman Islands was really appealing. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to take everything that I've done so far, which is, you know, modern advanced technology and take it with me. I'm not going to, you know, sort of start a a second tier uh, kind of, you know, thing. I want it to be as good a quality as you could get in New York City, because a lot of people in Cayman were needing to travel abroad in order to get their uh, IVF care because there wasn't IVF here before I was here. And I felt, well, if, if people have been traveling to get it, then why can't we just do it here? And why can't we do it as well, if not better than what they could get abroad? Which is where lucky me comes in, really. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you can imagine, Zinnia, before this clinic was set up here, as Dr. Davis said, everyone was traveling off island. So to add to the kind of emotional load and the logistic complexity of the logistical complexity of IVF in terms of the timing of, you know, all the different parts of the process and all of the different kind of hormones involved. And as you know, in all of the scans and everything, trying to time that with getting out of work to nip up to Miami, which is effectively the same as you leaving Bristol to nip over to Greece for a few days <laughs> is not exactly ideal and then you're a very small fish in a big pond kind of arriving from a small island into America with you know figuring out the healthcare and the insurances and all of that kind of stuff so to have a clinic here is just absolutely incredible we're we're a small town with world class healthcare so plug for the Cayman Islands and for, <laughs> for, for your clinic but i guess we can ask you what IVF has kind of come and done over the last few years maybe even or before you you left New York what were the kind of big leaps that you saw that you've seen happen or or maybe a kind of still to come in the world of IVF or what what was it that allowed you to open up this this clinic here is it just the fact that it's becoming more mainstream for people to be doing IVF that more people are doing it or I don't I don't know over to you to answer that I guess sure no and it's a very good question because within medicine I mean Obviously, we we look at advances and we look at sort of moving things forward for understanding and to be able to provide better care and to provide healthier outcomes. And, and that applies to all fields of medicine. Fertility is one of the fields that has had the most rapid technological advancements. And because IVF as a field was really started in the late 1970s, around 1978, uh, it was the first IVF baby from IVF from the UK, actually. And so everything that's happened in the world of fertility with IVF specifically is really within the last 40 plus years. So it's 
if you look at it relative to things like cancer or heart disease or other you know, aspects that are being researched heavily for many, many years, we, we move forward very quickly. And so it does change from year to year, from, from every five to 10 years uh, more dramatically. But where we were about a decade ago, we weren't really doing much in the way of genetic testing. And, and it, it was in its infancy. And in those days, there were a lot of technical challenges. There still are. But what some of the technical challenges were being able to get accurate testing uh, reliably and quickly so you can have actionable results. We also had challenges when it came to freezing of embryos. It seems kind of like a secondary issue. But when we do IVF, getting the eggs, fertilizing the eggs, growing to an embryo stage has been done fairly similarly for many, many years now, for decades. We've gotten better and better at growing them to a more robust stage. And along the way, we were looking at how do we freeze these embryos? Because you don't want to, you know, if you get six embryos, you don't want to put all six back into somebody that'd be, that wouldn't be very safe. So technology for freezing evolved alongside technology for growing embryos. And that's what really led to the ability to say, okay, we can grow these embryos now, we can freeze them. And if we sample cells from them, we can genetically test them. Well, you know, all of those kind of tracked along with each other, which has gotten to the point where we're now doing what's called next generation sequencing and, you know, really good, accurate testing of genetics of embryos at a stage where it's very safe. It's not damaging the embryos, which is very different from the way it was done, you know, five, 10 years ago. Where we want to go with that and where I think the next phase will be is even less invasive versions of it, where you don't have to sample cells from the embryo directly. You can look at the fluid that the embryo grows in. So there, there are a lot of things on the horizon to make the genetic testing either more accurate, which is always good, and less invasive, which is already fairly minimally invasive. So, so there's been a lot of changes in that particular sphere within the field. But a lot of it is like learning more and more about how embryos grow, what we can do to promote the best possible outcomes. And what's also kind of exciting is looking at a lot of people. You're right. You, you said kind of, is it become, I don't know your phrase exactly, but uh, kind of more commonplace. More mainstream, more, yeah. Yeah, more mainstream is that, you know, a lot of people in the early days of IVF and even 15, 20 years ago, the success rates were so poor and the cost was so high that it just wasn't achievable. It wasn't something that someone could do once, much less more than once. So as the technology has advanced, the cost of the equipment, the cost of the treatments have become a little bit more manageable because many people do need IVF more than once, uh, depending on their reason for doing it, depending on you know their ovarian reserve and so forth. So cost was a prohibitive factor for a while. Now that that's starting to balance a bit, I mean, it's still expensive, but it's, it's not, nothing like it was years ago balance that with the success rates. I mean, right now we're seeing an 85 plus percent pregnancy rate per embryo transferred, which, you know, five years ago, we were happy with a 60%, you know, and five years before that, if we broke 40 or 50%, we were ecstatic. So it's suddenly become a place where, okay, we're getting really good results. We're not, it's not as expensive. Okay. Now more people are willing and able to undergo it. And they're seeing those success rates, which is really what everything's focused on. That's so cool. And I, I think I'm quite matter of fact now talking because I love this like technology part of it. And I love the fact that, you know, you're able to, and we, we spoke about this in previous episode, Zinnia and I, and I gave the analogy of the fried egg where the, the yolk was the bit that you can't touch and the white you take the cells from to, to test. But the fact that you could not mm-hmm. even touch that bit and, and take from the fluid is like, just incredible to me and I talk now about you know if we're going to have more children then we've got a couple more in the freezer and people think that I'm kind of talking about my freezer back home like not storing my children there but someone is but it's just I mean it's it really is incredible the whole the whole freezing and and testing process so the fact that it's only going to continue to get better is is super exciting really really exciting absolutely so I guess it was sort of a perfect meeting, really, when Maya reached out to you. So for those who, who don't know, Maya's son, Leo, sadly died a couple of years ago. Well, a couple of years ago now? I mean, time flies. What, yeah. I can't remember what year. Yeah, he'd been 83, yeah. And he died of a rare genetic disorder. I can only ever remember the shortened or I only ever dare say the initials, which is <laughs> NKH. Oh, go on. <laughs> Give it a crack. <laughs> No, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna attempt it. That's that. I just embarrassed myself. <laughs> Go on, you say it. Non-catotic, non-catotic hyperglycinemia. 
Yes, that one. Rolls right off the tongue. Right <laughs> it really tongue. does. Um, and and it, previously, Maya and I have chatted about this, and Maya said that she was given a one in four chance of passing that on again to any future children that her and her husband, Rich, were, were to have. So, you know, you've mentioned this genetic kind of testing and the IVF route. So I suppose Maya kind of came to you looking for looking for some help. And um, yeah, what was your initial reaction? And sort of immediately, did you know exactly which route you would go down and what the options were for her? It was interesting, the timing, because we had literally just opened January and you're one of my first patients um, <laughs> here on island, obviously uh, had patients prior to coming here. But <laughs> and of course, I came to came in with the view that I was going to bring this amazing genetic technology. And then you always have that question of like, gosh, am I like overdoing it? Like, is this even needed? You know, are we like bringing this, you know, unnecessarily complex, uh, advanced approach where people may not need it. And then here in walks Maya, who's like, I have a particular situation where we have a known genetic condition and can you help me? And I was like, absolutely. This is, this is what the technology is developed for. And so when we do genetic testing of the IVF, there's sort of three categories, if you will, where one is sort of the general screening called uh, PGT-A or pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploid. And that is pretty universal. I mean, I would say about 80% of our patients do that uh, with IVF these days. So, and what you're really looking for there is big picture stuff, you know, are there 46 chromosomes? Yes or no. Like all humans should have 46 chromosomes. If you have an extra copy of 21, then you have Down syndrome, for example. If you're missing chromosomes or if they're, you know, extra ones, they're all different variations. But many of those uh, cause people to not be pregnant or to lose the pregnancy. So they are associated with miscarriages and fertility. That's sort of the same concept is there. But when we talk about PGTM, which is the particular version of it where we're looking for a single gene disorder, a monogenomic uh, disorder. That's where the M comes from. Everything is exactly the same leading up to it. We we do the IVF, we grow the embryos, we sample cells, and we genetically screen. The difference is, is you need to know exactly what you're looking for to be able to identify that particular condition. With PGTM, uh, even though it's less commonly used than PGTA, it is really the only way to identify a known genetic condition before becoming pregnant. Everything else is left to when you're pregnant, having to find out if your you know, a baby is affected by this. And so it really has changed a lot of people's lives to say that, okay, we can now proactively basically eliminate this abnormal gene and eliminate the potential complications that come from, you know, the worry, the everything else going through the pregnancy. I mean, obviously, as Mike can attest, it doesn't completely eliminate the worry, but at least it reduces the anxiety a bit going yeah. into the pregnancy. And um, and yeah, so it was uh, we were sort of ready and set up to do that. What we needed though was, of course, to know as much as we could about the particular gene, about the you know what we were looking for. So that's always the challenge when it comes to PGTM is you know getting a thorough background of both identifying if this is a condition that is is already known about, if it's identifiable. And so we work closely with the genetics company that does the analysis to sort of build this probe for the particular gene of interest. But then everything else is, you know, you do the IVF, you genetically screen the embryos and you look for this particular gene. And what you get back is a report that says, these are the embryos. These are the ones that have 46 chromosomes. So healthy, normal embryos. And within those, here's the one, here are the ones that carry one gene, carry both genes, don't have any genes and so forth. So you get kind of a breakdown. So one of the, you know, sort of advantages with IVF and the way that we do it is that we typically stimulate the ovaries to collect multiple eggs, knowing that not every egg is going to fertilize, not every fertilized egg is going to make it to embryo. But more importantly, with genetic screening is not every embryo is going to be normal. And some of those, if you're looking for a particular gene, may be affected, some of them won't be. So you to make one cycle as efficient as possible, you typically need to sort of maximally stimulate to collect as many eggs as possible or do multiple IVF cycles, less eggs, and, and hopefully eventually find the, the good one. So all of that kind of fits together with this idea of, okay, IVF is a really great treatment for this particular situation because there's a lot of pieces that have to work together. And, you know, the alternative without IVF is really just an error, you know, trying and then, you know, hopefully everything works fingers. out. And, right, exactly. So Yeah. But the alternative when the cross fingers doesn't work is unthinkable. So it was a literally a lifeline for us and, and amazing that 
you know, it just all happened at the right time. I'm quite surprised by the, did you say it was 80% now of IVF cases use pre-implantation screening? 80% of my patients, I will oh, say. Oh, of your patients. <laughs> yeah. So globally, it's going to vary quite a bit. Within the US, there's a greater use, utilization of genetic screening of PGTA. And it, it used to be, I mean, a few years back, it was sort of, it varied a lot depending on regions. So if you were on the East Coast, you tended to use a lot of PGTA, New York, Boston, places like that. If you're sort of central part of the US, there may be less availability of it or less experience with it. Obviously, every clinic is different. Every uh, level of understanding and experience is different. Nowadays, it's more and more prevalent. There are still sort of two schools of thought on it when it comes to general genetic screening, PGTA within IVF. And the arguments to do it are that you get extremely good success rates with low likelihood of miscarriage and generally you know, more successful, happier patients. The arguments against genetic screening is mostly financial. And a lot of people who are sort of questioning the the utility of genetic screening are saying, well, can't you just get pregnant without it? And yeah, it happens sometimes, doesn't happen as highly, you know, as, as often, but it's still okay. It's sort of the less is more kind of idea, even if it means going through multiple failed cycles. And so there is a there's a trade-off when it comes to genetic screening for single gene. I think the, the question is clear. There's no, it, it, the trouble is, is when you have a known particular genetic condition that you're trying to identify and eliminate, you're not having trouble becoming pregnant necessarily. You're just wanting to know the genetic composition of the embryo so that you can have the best successful outcome for other people. You know, there's a certain percentage of every, all the embryos in the world that are going to be genetically abnormal. Mm. And if you take the most, highly successful group of people getting pregnant. So you take a bunch of 20 year olds and say, well, what are their odds of becoming pregnant naturally? Well, they're, they're good. I mean, they're about 15, 20% per month naturally, but if you did IVF on them, about two thirds of their embryos would be genetically normal. So some people would argue that, well, if you're young and you're doing IVF for whatever reason, two out of three times, you're going to get a normal embryo. Don't bother spending the money on genetic testing. And it's not wrong logic, except for that person who says, well, I'd like to know which one third is abnormal and not transfer that because I want to have the best outcome. And so, you know, it's a reasonable consideration. And, and again, it comes down to a little bit of a difference in cost between a non-genetic tested cycle and a genetic tested cycle. Yeah. Do you, um, it's actually interesting that because it came up when, when we went through IVF and so my journey was that our embryos were being put into our surrogate. Mm. We, we decided not to do the embryo testing and our reasons were, were partly well, we've had two healthy sort of pregnancies so far. And, you know, so we're sort of like confident. We can be fairly confident on the sort of genetic side of things. That's probably really bad statistics, isn't it? You're probably being like, that's not how it works. But in my mind, that's how it But actually the thing that put us off was, and again, this is sort of the um, downfall of Dr. Google, but was finding, sort of saying that it could be risky to embryo survival by doing that. Now, I don't know if you've come across that as well, or if that's just a total myth. It's There is truth in everything, but I think it, you also have to look at a couple of different variables. So the the risk associated, and, and this is quite common, quite honestly, in the UK, a lot of the doctors in the UK sort of make that sort of comment to patients. A lot of the original studies of genetic testing in embryos were done in the days of a day three biopsy. So on day three, an embryo is eight cells. So if you're going to genetically test anything, if you're going to genetically test yourself, you sample cells and you, you want to ideally get a large number of cells so you get a reliable result. So you do like a cheek swab or a blood test or something and you send that off to be analyzed. That's what all our family did, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, it, and that's, you know, a very reliable, good way to do it. Well, if you're testing an embryo, same rules apply. You want to get enough of a sample to be able to get an accurate result. Well, if you have an eight cell embryo, if you take one cell, that's an eighth of the embryo. If you take two, that's a fourth of the embryo. And so in the early days of genetic testing, that was the major limitation is we would only sample one cell. And sometimes you get a result, sometimes you don't, but even so you're taking an eighth of the embryo. Nowadays we do blastocyst biopsies, which are you know, usually seven or eight cells out of 200 plus cells. So a very small percentage relative to the whole more accurate test, less damaging, but also honestly, it comes down to the technology of the lab and the experience level. I mean, I've seen some labs, even in the U S 
where they don't do PGT very often. When they do, it's once every few months and they're kind of remembering how to do it. Well, the risk of damage to the embryo is going to be greater, just like anything else. If you've never changed your own oil, you're probably not going to do it very efficiently, you know, if you do it once every mm-hmm. few years. So the it, a lot of it does come down to volume. And, and that, like I said, I came from a practice in New York that was known for PGT and we did tens of thousands of cycles. And so, you know, the technique was, was proven and vetted and we didn't see any risk associated with it. Mm. The the technology or the technique to biopsy cells is not all that different from what you do when you don't biopsy. If you do a technique called assisted hatching, we're basically make a small opening in the outer shell of the embryo to help it implant. And most clinics around the world do assisted hatching. PGT sampling is just sort of a, a slight step above that. But there is a technique to it. So I think when clinics, I guess I would say to anyone who's listening that is considering it, if you're hearing from a clinic, don't do PGT because it's going to damage the embryo, that I think to me says that the clinic may not be as comfortable with it. And so if it's something you're interested in, you want to seek out a clinic that that is known for doing it and doing it regularly. You don't want it to be their first time. That's really great advice. Because yeah, when I yeah. when I talk to people that are considering doing IVF, I'm like, why wouldn't you? And I guess that's because my experience, you know, thankfully has been with a clinic that is very comfortable doing it, specializes in it, as you said. And that was my first introduction to IVF because I needed it. So, you know, lucky that I found a clinic and the one on my doorstep is a specialist. But I guess it's it's advice that I should also be careful giving out because the advice should be slightly different. It's to say, you know, if you're interested in it, find someone that is considers themselves a specialist in it and then ask all the right questions. Yeah, I think it's I think it's so valid, though, isn't it? You know, like putting in a perfect embryo that you're less likely is going to be less likely to miscarriage just makes sense and particularly when I think of it through my surrogacy lens you know I'm sure that most surrogates would feel much more comfortable you putting in that perfectly sort of tested full top mark embryo as well so no it's 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 definitely interesting to see where it's going to go and if it will just in time become the absolute norm and for anyone, I guess, who, you know, has been through a loss before, even more so if they're just not feeling emotionally stable enough to, you know, take any more losses, you want to reduce that risk um, as much as possible for them. And that's obviously the where we were coming at it from, not least needing to solve the genetic puzzle, but I would have done anything to kind of give us the best possible outcome. And I think, I don't know if you remember this, um, Dr. Davis, but I think on transfer day, you said to me, you've carried before you know, everything is looking great with your lining. We're basically putting a diamond into a marshmallow at this point. And that's really <laughs> stuck with me. I was like, diamond and marshmallow, diamond and marshmallow. This is all going to be fine. So, you know, hopefully people can find a clinic that, that creates a diamond and marshmallow situation for them. <laughs> but just quite quickly, whilst we're on the, the kind of genetics topic, we are going to actually speak to some genetics counsellors in a future episode. So for anyone listening, that is kind of coming up this series as well, if you're interested in that. But what from your in your opinion, Dr. Davis, and kind of from what you saw before you left New York, genetically modified babies let's just talk about that where where do you see this whole thing going because you know great that you can eliminate something that's potentially terminal to a future um child but what about all the other good stuff that people are going to start delving into where do you see that going so it's a dicey field and i'll tell you i one of my other hats i wore was i sat on the american society reproductive medicine ethics committee for about six years prior to coming down here and this is one of the top topics that was raised in the ethics circles is, you know, the ethics of CRISPR technology, CRISPR-Cas9, and the, the technology used to, to modify the genome or to, to cut genes out and to sort of correct, you know, sort of another term used is gene therapy. Uh, that's a broad term that include, includes other types of technology. But the idea is always there is we have, okay, we can identify abnormality and everybody's comfortable with saying, okay, this is abnormal and this is normal. Then the next level is, well, could we fix something? You know, could we not just identify it, but could we actually remove this and make things better? It starts to become a bit of a slippery slope though, because, you know, once you start doing things like that, we don't really know long-term effects. We don't know if, yes, we, in theory, it makes sense. You're doing this thing, but I always use the example of cancer. Like if someone has cancer and you cut the cancer out, you're not just back to normal again. You've still got the subsequent 
effects of the cancer having been there, the treatment, the removal, and so forth, and your body has to adapt. Well, we don't know those effects on gene uh, editing. And so until we do know those effects, we don't really want to say, well, it's truly safe and healthy and everything else. And so, but then the, the debate comes, well, how do you get that information? How do you know this? How do you learn that this is safe uh, long-term down the road until you do it? So I think it's going to be a bit of a debate for a while as to where people are comfortable with the technology going. I, I know that it's it's always in flux and there's a lot of different opinions on it on both sides because the, the frequent example against it that's always brought up is, oh, now we're doing designer babies. We're doing, I want the blue-eyed, you know, dark skin. Yeah. Six foot four, like perfect, you know, and uh, obviously that's a sci- sort of science fiction stretch of it, but people don't seem to have so much of a concern from the idea of like, well, if we have this genetic condition that's debilitating and we could remove it, well, yeah, that would be great. But if we start using it for less important things, and so then the question is, well, what type of conditions are less or more critical or important? And how do you qualify what is a significant medical condition and what isn't? And it's interesting because when I years ago when I was in academics, we did a, a study of this. We basically were studying physicians and medical people and non-medical people, their sort of comfort level with the status of genetic testing, genetic treatments. And it varied a lot by where people came from. You know, if somebody was working in a field of medicine that had a particularly high risk of awful things happening like cancer, then they were more prone to say, well, yes, absolutely. We should be doing gene editing. You know, this is something that I could, my whole field could be improved by this. All of my patients could be healthier. Whereas you get to the sort of average person who isn't involved in medicine on a day-to-day basis. They say, well, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. This seems like it's going down a, a road that we don't want to go down. And obviously there's a lot of variation. So I think while it's definitely being developed and it's being looked at in a research umbrella under a research umbrella, I don't know when it's going to be, if it's going to be mainstream or when, but I think it's still a little ways to go. Right. God. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be around that debate table. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess also what feeds into that is choosing whether you want a male or female embryo, right? As well, because in some countries that that's a thing, right? Right. (laughs) You can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you? Yeah, it is. So so that's a total no go over here in the UK. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting element because there are ethical and moral debates on both sides. What I find it fascinating, I mean, I love ethics, I love being involved in the ethics sort of discussions, but, you know, on one level, I'll say, I'll go on record to say this is that when you get a genetic report, it reports the 46 chromosomes that are in the embryo in a, in a healthy, normal embryo. Two of those chromosomes are either X's or Y's if it's a, you know, boys or girls. So to have data like that, to have a particular report and to ignore one, you know, two out of the 46 chromosomes just seems sort of, I don't know, unusual to me, but there are definitely people who feel very strongly that, no, this is a, this is the line. We don't, you know, go beyond this line where you can know that if you've got a normal embryo or a healthy embryo, but you can't know if it's a boy or a girl. And most of the arguments for and against it are somewhere in between those two. You know, the, the arguments for it are that it's it's genetic information. It's just like any other blood test you get. It's it's your information to have as a patient. The arguments against it typically are, are, are multifaceted, but they tend to involve a lot about fears that people will be discarding embryos based off sex as opposed to chromosomal normality. And that, you know, again, it's sort of this question about the, where do you draw the line in the gene editing? Well, what's an okay, acceptable level and what's a questionable level is, you know, cutting out a cancer gene is okay, but cutting out uh, brown eyes is not, you know? And so it is debatable and professional societies try to do their best to set standards that the, that the society is comfortable with. And so it does vary by country. It varies by, you know, jurisdiction, lots of different influences. Yeah, and I think it's something we can um, talk to the genetics counsellor a bit more as well, because they do a lot on on family balancing, particularly in the US now. But it does, I think it's such a personal kind of debate that can, that can get pretty heated sometimes with with differing Mm -hmm. opinions on, on all of, you know, the things that you just, that you just touched on. It's, it's a really, really interesting, but really tricky kind of conversation. It definitely is. Definitely is. And it is. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, quite honestly. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, it's, 
it's, I think to me, the right answer is the one that is discussed between the patient and the doctor and that respects and supports everyone's beliefs and, and comfort. And that's, I think, a message that I send to every patient is that if patients are looking for a particular doctor, a particular practice, make sure that you feel comfortable that your concerns and your interests are being valued and, and being listened to and and that you're okay with it, you're comfortable with it, because there are definitely places, like you said, in the UK, where this particular thing isn't okay, and you may be okay with that. But if you're not, then there's other alternatives out there, and it's you know it's okay to sort of find that that mesh, that blend. Yeah, good good advice, I think. Right. So when I when I chatted about my IVF experience in episode <laughs> six in series one, um, <laughs> I felt well. I had what we call mild IVF. And I don't know if you had the chance to listen to that episode, but after going through the mild IVF process, I was a little bit dubious. I felt like I'd been a bit duped. <laughs> and Zinnia has a background in marketing. I should just point uh, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she so was, I was marketed like, too. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I feel like I really fell for let's go down the less drugs route. And that kind of fits with the type of person I am. I was like, yeah, sold. And I felt like I ended up having lots of drugs, loads of eggs harvested. And actually out, the outcome was not many embryos. So t- tell me about IVF, mild IVF. Have you come across it before? So, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's important that you mention the marketing aspect because for better, or for worse, mild IVF or mini stem IVF or natural cycle IVF is there, there's all different sort of terms for it. There's, there's definitely a role for it. And, you know, it all, all IVF, all fertility treatments are the same. And I, and I say this to pretty much every patient. So might've probably heard me say this before, uh, maybe not because we we're speaking specifically about genetics, but if you look at what does it take to make a baby, you need an egg, you need a sperm, you need to get them together. That's it. Whether you're trying naturally, whether you're doing inseminations, whether you're doing IVF or donor egg or whatever, it's a combination of egg and sperm, getting them together, getting them into a uterus of some capacity, whether it's yours or a surrogate. So all of that's the same. Where mild IVF, regular IVF, quote unquote, or whatever, there's not really a term for non-mild IVF, I guess, normal IVF, (laughs) traditional (laughs) IVF. What they're really looking at is what level of stimulation of the ovaries are you going to undergo to get more or less eggs? And so there is a certain balance and there's a lot of research on this to say, you know, what dosing regimen is appropriate or what ratio of medications are appropriate. I may stand alone in this view, but I feel that the medications we use to stimulate the ovaries are actually very, very natural because they are natural hormones. They're FSH and LH like hormones from the, from the body basically versus like a antibiotic or something that's synthetic that's made in the lab. That's totally different from your body. I mean, the IVF medications are the same hormone your brain makes FSH just in higher amounts. So it's sort of a question of, do you take a low dose of them similar to your natural cycle? Because naturally somebody who has a menstrual cycle every month, a small amount of FSH is released from the brain. You grow one egg. That one egg may or may not fertilize, may or may not grow into an embryo, may or may not be genetically normal. So if you want to make that particular cycle more efficient, you give yourself more FSH. So mild stimulation or mini stim IVF is usually either a low-dose FSH injection or even less than that. Sometimes people use Clomid or Femara, which are pills that fool the body into making its own FSH at a higher amount. So you kind of jump up the boost on the uh, natural process, but all of them yield a certain number of eggs and not necessarily something you can predict 100% in advance as to how many, but there are definitely people who for whatever reason, they're doing IVF and they don't need a lot of eggs. They're very young. They had the tubes tied, for example, like somebody who's in their twenties and their, their tubes don't work. So we've got all the eggs in the world. They should have good quality eggs. They're young. Well, realistically, they could probably have normal embryos out of just a few eggs. And so that person may not need a lot of medication to get to their goal, which is to have a baby. Somebody who's older probably needs more eggs because those eggs may not all be chromosomally healthy embryos. And therefore, if you want to get the most out of one IVF cycle, stimulating a little bit more aggressively would likely yield one cycle to be more successful. In the case of someone who's doing PGTM, for example, where we know, okay, we need a good number of eggs because not everyone's going to be fertilized, but then also not all of them are going to be normal and not all the normal ones are going to be not affected. So when we look at sort of the pyramid of where 
at the end of the day, how many embryos do we need to get to the normal level? Well, sure, you could do that in three or four IVF cycles. And from a financial standpoint for the clinic, that's probably very beneficial. But from a patient standpoint, if you can do it in one go, then A, it's a little bit less expensive. It's less invasive because it's one round. And so it's it's a bit of a balance. I think the there's no, there are clinics in mini IVF, uh, you know, minimal stem IVF, and that's their whole thing. That's all they do for everybody. And I think just like no one thing fits all, there's a role for it. There are people who would benefit from it, but there are other people who very clearly, they need a high dose of medication just to get three or four eggs to grow, to make the cycle even worth it. So there's a bit of a balance and I, I try to personalize it to every patient. And I talk about the pros and cons. There are definitely people. And honestly, the place, weirdly enough, the place I use mini stem IVF the most is in the person who's tried the maximal stim IVF where they've taken all the meds in the world and they only got one or two eggs and that's all they are ever going to get. They say, look, we could probably get one or two eggs with less medications. You know, mm. to be honest, the question is, do you start there and say, well, we'll just give you a low dose medication see what you get. And then when you get two eggs, you're like, gosh, what if we had done more? Could we have gotten three or four? Well, we don't know. But if you have a run of it and you only get one or two eggs and everything else doesn't seem to be, you know, in favor of getting more, let's see if we can do it for less cost, less invasive and see. And so it, it, a lot of it is that, that relationship between the doctor and the patient to talk about what are your goals? What are the realistic outcomes and what works for you? But definitely, unfortunately, mini STEM has got a lot of layers to it and particularly a lot of marketing layers to it. And so it's, it, it's given a bit of a bad name in that regard, because I think there is a role for it. I just don't think it's for everybody in every situation. And so, yeah, so I think there. I see where you're coming from with it. It sounds though like more like what your situation was is you were intending to do minimal stimulation and your body responded like gangbusters and you got <laughs> a lot more for your, your bargain for. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that was it. And I, I don't. The, my reaction to that was, how can this be mild if we got like you know nearly twenty eggs or something? What's going on? I think we got twelve the first time and eighteen the second time, and I was like. How is this mild? What if I'd gone full? If I'd gone full, like whack, oh, like yeah. fifty or something. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Cool, right? Well, not not all IVF clinics, I guess, as anything in the medical field, are created equal. But more than that, it's not even, I guess, what I'm learning. Not even just about the kind of the doctor, but there's actually different special specialisms or, or kind of things, different things that different clinics kind of focus on. Um, so it's really important for people listening where they've got a lot of different clinics to choose from. Maybe don't even just go on the kind of star rating or all the testimonials. Go on the type of treatment and the type of issues that you are trying to address because different clinics will will be able to address different different things. Absolutely. And I think that is something and I, I hope that I achieve this in every consultation I do with patients is to really first establish what is it that you're looking for? You know, what are you hoping to achieve? Because, uh, you know, oftentimes when people come in, they, they've got a few different ideas, or maybe they have very clear ideas of what they want to achieve. And I think it's best to sort of be on the same page. I've definitely had patients that came in that clearly they've been trying for many, many years. They, they need IVF and in all medical decisions, they need IVF, but that's not where they're at. I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that and say, you know what, there is no one perfect treatment for everybody. And, you know, again, there's that person who I would say, gosh, you really need a really aggressive protocol of IVF meds to get some eggs. And you, that may not fit with your personality. I'd rather understand where you're coming from so that we can find what works for you than to just prescribe what I think is always good and just, uh, you know, hope that you, you agree with me. So I think that's <laughs> an important conversation. <laughs> Okay, so people I know and um, I sort of see these stories on social as well or kind of hear them on the grapevine that you hear about people who've been trying for ages, not not getting pregnant, and they finally get their IVF appointment booked. And just the moment that happens, bam, they get pregnant. Or equally, I've got a friend who they ha- they've had two children via IVF and then they've suddenly found out that they are pregnant naturally with their third. Do you kind of have a theory on this at all? I do. And, and you do. You see it. I mean, interestingly enough, this has been studied. <laughs> so it's, oh. it's kind of one of those questions that always comes up. But then so every year I go to a national fertility uh, professional uh, society convention that we have called the ASRM uh, meeting every year. And 
so all this research is presented from all different parts of the world. And one of the interesting presentations was on this exact question. It was a study done by someone working within the government system. So in the US, you know, we don't have an NHS like you do in the UK, but we have like CDC and FDA and other uh, bodies that sort of have a lot of data. And within that, they have this large data set. So all fertility practices in the US have to report their data to, to the CDC, which is interestingly enough. And so they've just got this massive amount of data over the years. And so somebody looked into that data to say, you know, what is this sort of, what can we ascertain from this? And they had other data as well from other large group studies like that. And what they found was that there statistically is not an increased chance of getting pregnant after either doing IVF or in the process of doing IVF from a data standpoint. So whether that's accurate data or not, it's always a big question, but I would say anecdotally, yeah, I do have an occasional patient who does that, but it's not the norm. So my view is that I refer to it as the Yelp phenomenon is that, you know, if it happens, you're likely to tell 10 people when it doesn't happen, you may not tell anybody. And so the the occasion that it does happen, that everybody and their sister knows about it because it's so amazing. And oh my gosh, those doctors knew nothing. And we, we were able to fall pregnant without any help, which is great. I take full credit for that. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but, um, but no, I think it's, it, it is, if we do see it happen and, and I've had it happen, you know, like I said, occasionally over the years and it, it, I would love to say that there's something more magical about it, like the hormone blend or the, you know, the heightened ability, the focus on it and everything else. But I think quite honestly, it, what it does is it highlights something that I always tell patients is look, I can give you success rates. I can give you statistics. I can give you all kinds of numbers. None of them are going to be a hundred or zero. Meaning if I have a patient that is you know, uh, say 45 years old, and we know that it's very difficult to get pregnant. It's not impossible. And there are 45 year olds who do get pregnant without any assistance. They do happen. And we see this. It's just all the fertility treatments that we do are geared towards making that success more likely or more efficient and uh, to try to get you there faster. So, and, and I think that's an important takeaway is that when you do see people that become pregnant after all these years of trying or failed IVF or whatnot, it's because people still get pregnant, you know, just mm-hmm. what we do, you know, it's uh, unless somebody has no ovaries, uterus and tubes, then I'd say, you know, your chance of pregnant is not zero and getting pregnant is not zero because it does happen. I wish there was something that I could help make that more likely for people so they wouldn't need my services, but unfortunately I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and on the topic of kind of the, the, magical I don't know what the word is the the magical formula it both when people are getting pregnant naturally and when they're going through IVF but particularly I think when you're going through IVF there's a lot lot of kind of old wives tales or stuff out there on on Google and blogs of what to do to increase your chances of IVF and I'm going to just say point blank I threw everything at the wall I mean you know we were kind of tens of thousands of dollars genetically tested to within an inch of our lives I wasn't going to not do whatever it took in the last couple of weeks and be, you know I tried the things that I know that there is statistics on where where it's kind of acupuncture and things like that but I ate all the blood foods and I drank the ridiculously expensive pomegranate juice and I, I mean I can't remember I, I mean I did all of it I literally did all of it but it's the same as kind of you know doing a handstand after you've had sex like is there any how are you going to filter out all of those factors and say whether any of them had any of an impact but I guess this is your opportunity, Dr. Davis, for your myths debunked. Are there any are there any of those things that you think truly do help? Are there things that you say, you know, help people on their journey that you would that you would suggest? Or is it all rubbish? And would you just love people to stop talking about and suggesting all of that kind of random stuff? It's not all rubbish, but like everything, certain things work for certain people and certain things don't work for anybody. And so, and that's, I think, why these different treatments and techniques and blogs exist in the world is because there's a a bit of truth to all of it. You know, everyone who's gotten pregnant has, for the most part, has probably eaten a pineapple at some point in time. Does pineapple make you fall pregnant? Well, no, but I like (laughs) there's nothing wrong with it. You know, obviously there's people who can't eat it, but so a lot of those things are, I think there's multiple levels to look at them. Vitamin D, for example, is known if you're deficient, that actually lowers your pregnancy rate and increases your miscarriage rate. So I check it on everybody and I re- replace it in people who it's low in. Another plug for the Cayman Islands, you just come here and you get more just from being in the sun. So, yeah, um, Although but, everyone wears sunscreen, so you don't actually get it. 
I know, no, no, but still, you should come anyways. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vinny has been, Vinny has been to visit yeah. me, although not for a few years. So, oh, see, now now's the time. But, but no, that's the thing is, so there are certain things like that where we know that, yeah, if you're truly deficient in certain things, then replacing them and correcting them is good. When it comes to uh, even things like acupuncture, there is some data that acupuncture helps. What we know about a lot of I don't want to lump everything in together into complementary and alternative medicine, but in non-sort of Western medical medication treatments, studying them and their effect is extremely difficult because they may have a subtle benefit or detriment. So you need a massive group of people to study and they all have to be very similar. And we're just not built that way. Like you can't get a million people that all did the exact same thing the same way and find a statistical significant benefit to a certain treatment. So as a result, it kind of relegates itself to, well, risk versus reward is the risk of doing this thing higher than the benefit. For the most part, pineapple and acupuncture, things like that for the low risk. Is there a benefit? Maybe. We don't know for sure. Certain. But then the next layer on top of it, I think, is the individual person's sort of psychological view of it is that, you know, if you really worry that you're not doing everything and having a pineapple the night before the egg collection is going to make you feel like you did everything, well, then by all means, you do that, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think, and that's something, and I, I use this example a lot in my patients that are newly pregnant. You know, we see them at the five-week mark for the first ultrasound. And I frequently get the question of, well, can I exercise? Can I do this? Can I do this? And I say, look, most miscarriages happen in the first trimester for totally random reasons that have nothing to do with what you did. But if you are the type of person who will associate what you did or didn't do with that miscarriage and kick yourself for the rest of your life, then do what you think is right. And I think that general guidance falls with all of this. If you feel like if the cycle was unsuccessful for whatever reason, and you didn't get acupuncture at 10 AM, like you were supposed to that morning in your calendar, then okay, go ahead and make an effort to do that. But if you're the type of person who's like, look, the more supplements I take, it's just driving me crazy. It's stressing me out. I'm losing sleep. Well, then maybe it's best to avoid them because none of them have really been proven to be hundred percent successful and stress is not good. So anything you can do to reduce stress, whether that be mindfulness, meditation, acupuncture, exercise, whatever, I think find the thing that works for you to make you feel less stressed and more comfortable. And that's going to be the key. Uh, don't necessarily feel like you need this long, long list of things. I know that there are definitely people out there and there's physicians out there even that will give you a very clear prescriptive list of here's all the things you need to do. And if you don't do everything on this list, then you're, you're doomed for failure. I think, again, that's very impersonal and it's, it's not really backed up by a whole lot of data. I think it's better to kind of say, here's a whole bunch of things that people have tried. If you've comfortable with them, if you're not comfortable with them, you take you take your pick. And I think as a physician, my role is to be open to listening to what people's questions are, researching them if I don't know the answer. If it's something I've never heard of before, then I will happily look into it and get back to you. And then if it is something I'm familiar with, say, here, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. And I can tell you it's not harmful. You know, if you yeah. want to, you know, put your feet in salt water three times a day. Sure, why not? It doesn't hurt you anything, you know. <laughs> it's, you know, and and at the end of the day, no matter what happens, if you can look back and feel like you did everything that you could, then that's the most important thing. I feel like that's very good life advice, let alone IVF journey advice. <laughs> and I feel like I've just been psychoanalyzed about the fact that I did everything. <laughs> but no, I think there are a lot of people that would just say, you know what, I'm just paying a lab to do it and I'm going to focus on that and let them do their job. And in the meantime, I'm going to have a glass of wine and relax. And, you know, it's completely out of my hands. And I was just like, well, you know, I'm going to put my body in the best kind of situation it possibly can be in probably denying myself a couple of glasses of wine in the process which I might look back and kick myself on but you know if everyone kind of makes the sacrifices that that they're comfortable with or, or makes the decisions that they're comfortable with I guess that's and comparison um, doesn't really get you very far in these situations so that that is good advice as well well is there anything else you've kind of wanted to to share with us Dr Davis or maybe we can end with what makes your job great and why you love being doing what you do um or if there's anything else you want to share with us honestly i'm just uh, honored to be here and Aww. to be a part of your your journey my i know it was such a, a such a big sort of start to it and to see the success that you've had and to to think that i had a small part in that is just a, a true honor so it's and that's oh, i think you. to answer your other question that's that's what it is uh, for me uh, every day that i get to see 
someone hold a baby or have an ultrasound of their baby if they're not quite at the stage of holding the baby yet is like it just makes it all worth it you know for every bad outcome or difficult outcome that success just kind of wipes them all away and so i think that and that's what why we do this right we do this because growing families helping people achieve their goals is just such a meaningful thing and a sort of an interesting quote that i heard years ago and it's always sort of Stuck with me. I thought it was interesting. I, I used to work, uh, I did some work with the World Health Organization and a lot about sort of fertility advocacy and fertility policy. And people in medicine tend to say, like, oh, you know, fertility is kind of a, it's not really a critical thing, right? Like, you know, it's not like cancer or diabetes or some really important medical thing. And I said, you know what, that's true. And this, this quote stuck with me. Someone told me one time that if the whole world got diabetes today, that would be a real tragedy. If everyone got infertility, we'd cease to exist. That's an actual good point is that, you know, what we're doing is helping humanity and, you know, that's a big, a big ask and a big task and uh, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you can look at it like that from the sort of the massive overarching level, but also on the individual level, you are making, you know, such an amazing difference to people's lives. So yeah, I mean, thank you for doing what you do and being very good at it by um, by all accounts. And thank you for coming on and, you know, giving us all of the facts and the info. It's been so insightful to hear everything from you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time for another big up and mother's moan for those of you that don't know uh, each week we big up someone or something that we love and we also have a moan about something that is really annoying us so this week I think it's my turn to have a moan actually and given moan away (laughs) thanks well I think given that we are sort of on the topic of IVF I'm going to stick to to that one which is basically the shitty roller coaster of emotions <laughs> that comes with IVF. I mean, not only just encourage, you know, sort of, I guess, well, exaggerated by all of the hormones that you're taking, but yeah. it's that you're doing that whilst you're also trying to pretend to be completely normal and go about your day-to-day life. And I mean, I found, and I'm sure lots of other people are in the same situation, that you're going to work, yet then you've got to take time off work to go and have the sort of scans every other freaking day, it seems, and the blood tests and all of that. And you're feeling crap. And it is just so much to to take and to go through whilst putting on a really freaking brave face and trying to do your day job and sometimes just having to hide it. It's just, it, it's exhausting. It's so much and so many people do it. And, oh yeah. I mean, I also feel like adding a big up on the end is that big up to everyone who does do it and does get through it. It's massive. <laughs> yeah. And uh, do you know what? This is, I was just talking to someone about this this weekend because it's a bit like your period, isn't it? That you, even though your period comes every month, you still don't see it coming sometimes. And even though you're injecting yourselves with hormones every single day, when you feel a bit sad or a bit overwhelmed, you still don't really know why when you're doing IVF. You can like burst into tears and be like, I don't know why I'm so upset. Well, might be something to do with the fact that there's shitloads of pressure on you right now. And you're injecting yourself literally with things that make you feel crazy. (laughs) That's why. Yeah, (laughs) crazy and crap. And yeah, (laughs) yeah, I mean, what, you know. I feel, yeah. Anyway, so there we go. There's there's my moan, the shitty roller coaster of everything that comes with IVF. (laughs) Yeah, the exciting but very high pressured. I am going to, let's stay on topic. Let's, Let's be cheese balls and just stay within the IVF world. I'm going to big up my... IVF team we've just spoken to um the brilliant Dr Davis but actually let's to broaden it out because I don't want to speak just specifically about them like a broken record but I think all of the IVF staff and doctors who get it who actually understand that it is a bit of a shitty roller coaster of emotions and 
are there for you and have time for you and will always answer your questions or, you know, when you're overanalyzing every twang and pang and bit of bloatedness will, you know, be there on the end of the phone or on the end of a text message and, and, and understand and get it that it's, that it's a big deal and support you through it. So if you're one of those, then big up to you because they're a massive part of our journey, aren't they? So yeah, can, and I think do it without them. And I'm sure there's kind of good and bad out there and, and to the good ones. Thank you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it can really make or break your experience of the journey whether you've got someone, you know, really great who's going to listen to you and treat you as an individual. And I think mm-hmm. I definitely remember having a moan slash perhaps rant um, about this in series <laughs> one where I felt like I was on a conveyor belt and I wasn't being treated as an individual and wasn't being listened to. And actually you just it makes the whole process so much worse because it's such a big thing. It's such a personalized thing which should be so personalized. And you're more often than not, you're probably paying you know, through the nose for it. <laughs> so yeah. you kind of feel like on all those levels that you need and deserve to have that personal attention. So yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that big up for those that big up, do big like up that. to good IVF customer service. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So that rounds out this episode. Thank you so much again for listening to us. Next week, we are going to be hearing from a lovely lady, Lauren, whose twin boys were tragically stillborn after her suffering a rare pregnancy condition known as TTTS. Yeah, and obviously we will go into what on earth that stands for um, when when we speak to Lauren next week. So make sure you tune in next Wednesday for another episode of Making It to Motherhood. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram at Making It to Motherhood. And keep spreading the word. Give us a review, please, if you haven't already. And have a great week. Thanks for listening.